Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell, lead pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, where the title of the message is Raising the Dead. Raising the Dead. This front section's very excited about it, and by the end, the rest of you will be, you'll be uh, shouting the house down. So um, I know this. I know when we talked about last week when I said we're going to see resurrections from the dead, I know there were some, and you're like, uh, pardon me, did I hear that right? Or he is, he's completely lost it. I mean, the, he has just gone way out there, and that's, you know, I understand that, but that is, that says less about me than it does about where the contemporary church has landed on the supernatural and on their understanding of the Word of God. I mean, think of this. The Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 26 and verse 8, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? You know who he's saying that to? He's saying it to unbelievers. He's saying it to Festus, the Roman governor. He's saying it to King Agrippa, who is uh, involved with his stepsister, Bernice, who is not, I mean, is not a good dude. And Paul's saying, why are you surprised God would raise the dead? If that's to unbelievers, how much more would he say to us? Why would any of us find it incredible that God would raise the dead? He's a God who does that. He's a God of resurrection power. And we're going to see that in Acts chapter 20. It is one of 10 stories in the Bible where someone is raised from the dead. So there's not one, there's not two, there's 10 stories in the Bible that talk about God raising the dead. So let's look at it, Acts chapter 20, verse 1. When the uproar had ended, so there was a riot at Ephesus because of all the miracles. Paul is in a season of his life where he is seeing a move of God in Ephesus that was absolutely, still to this day, one of the greatest moves of God anywhere. And Paul is functioning with a supernatural anointing on his life still. He sent for the disciples. That's not Peter and John and Jesus' disciples. This are the, the, the word disciple, learners, followers, people following him to learn from him, people a part of his ministry. And after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words. So he's traveling through the area of Macedonia speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived at Greece. Let's get a little map here and we get an idea. So remember, Paul is on his third missionary trip. He goes to Ephesus. A massive revival happens there. And then he, what we just read, is he goes over to Macedonia, and he spends quite a bit of time there. Most theologians believe Paul spent a year and a half there. So in one verse, you have a year and a half. So one of the things as you're reading the book of Acts, if you, if you just are just spinning through it and you're not reading either the notes or looking at a commentary, you don't get a sense of what's happening in the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul tells us what happened while he was there in Romans chapter 15. Look at this. I'll not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done. 
by the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Spirit, so from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. What Paul is saying is, Paul is saying, to fully proclaim the gospel, it's not just a matter of what we say, it's a matter of what we do. And I'm not talking about kind acts. I'm talking about signs and wonders. Jesus' ministry, Luke tells us, Acts chapter 1, was based on what he said and what he did. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, it's a matter of power. One of the reasons why the contemporary church has lacked power is because the contemporary church has settled for a gospel exclusively of words. It's both. It's the word of God, which has an inherent power, and it's signs and wonders, which validate the message of the word of God. Paul says, I had both of those going on. They were both part of my ministry. We're going to bring up a second map. Here you see Macedonia. Here's Illyricum. So Paul is going throughout this region over a year and a half, and he's preaching, and everywhere he's going, he's doing mighty miracles as well as preaching the word of God. Back to Acts chapter 20. He travels through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally he goes south down to Greece. There he stayed three months because the Jews made a plot against him just as he was about to sail for Syria. He decided to go back through Macedonia. So he goes back up north. He was accompanied by Sopater, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. Notice the us. All of a sudden, Luke now is traveling with him. Many people believe as he was in Macedonia, he was staying at the city Philippi, one of the leading cities in Macedonia, and he was staying there with Dr. Luke and Lydia. So now Luke is traveling with them. We sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So here's the map again to kind of show you. So they He's up in Macedonia, goes down into Greece, goes back up into Macedonia, over to Philippi, and sails back to Troas. So that's where he's at as we read the remainder of chapter 20, verse 7. Let's look at it. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people because he intended to leave the next day. So on the first day of the week, uh, a lot of theologians believe this indicates that by this time, Christians were beginning to worship on Sunday. People ask, why do we worship on Sunday? It became a celebration. It was called the Lord's Day, Resurrection Day. And so Christians worshiped on that day. He says we came together to break bread. So the breaking of bread, whenever you see it in the book of Acts, is, is referring to communion. They're having communion, which is a part of a larger dinner. And uh, usually as they're having dinner, they would close out the dinner with a communion service. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. So very, very long-winded. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. So 
That, that is speaking to two issues that we're going to see. Number one, it's a large gathering of people. It's not a small gathering. Consequently, they need many lamps. So it's probably in, in a wealthy person's home. It's a house church. Paul's there. The lamps are burning, and it's night. And you know now, uh, you're, you've been there for a long time. It's midnight now. The lamps are burning, and they're flickering, and you're listening to Paul, but you're also uh, you know, watching the lights burn and wondering if they're going to go out. You know all the things people do. Like some of you are counting the light bulbs in here, and and you know, I mean, I've, we, I know how that works. People, you know, get bored. They look around. They're like, well, now why did they do those sound panels? Like, I mean, it's that kind of thing. So, you know, and Paul's going on and on. And Paul's not the most interesting. He's interesting, but he's not the most dynamic speaker. And we know that because he, the Corinthians charged him with this. His critics said, "Oh, in his letters, he's very forceful and impressive, but in person." He's not impressive, and, and this is the exact quote, his speaking amounts to nothing. Oh, dagger in the heart for any preacher. And so they're saying that about Paul. So as he's talking, keep in mind, this is not, you know, Apollos, one of the great preachers of the early church. This is not Spurgeon. This is not whoever you like that is, is considered dynamic. This is Paul, and it's not a lot of razzmatazz uh, in terms of his rhetoric. Seated in the window was a young man named Eutychus. Just as a side note, ninth most popular name in the Roman Empire at that time, Eutychus. In case you're looking for a name for your <laughs> baby that's on the way, Eutychus. Who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul I love this. Luke is telling it like it is. Talked on and on. I mean, you know, he's setting the stage. You know, lamps flickering. It's midnight. Eutychus is like in this window, and it's wide. The walls are thick, so he's leaning back, and he's trying to stay awake, but he's starting to nod off. Kind of reminds me, my first church, uh, the vice chairman of the board was in his 70s, and he and his wife would always sit on the third row on this side, right on the aisle, where everybody could see him and I could see him. And, and I mean, I no sooner start to preach, and the guy would go like, <clears throat> you know what I mean? He'd be, he'd be out. Everybody could hear him. His wife would elbow him. He'd kind of come to, but uh, not for long. And so uh, he was out. I, I figured people asked me if it bothered me. I, I, initially, the first time, I was like, say what? But then after that, you kind of get used to it, and you're like, well, one way or another, he's going to get something out of the service. So, um, so here's Paul. They're, they're doing this thing, and, and Eutychus is falling asleep. Now look at it, verse 9. And when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story. So he's falling 25, 30 feet, and he's hitting on stone. He's probably a courtyard out there, maybe a street but it's stone, and he is falling, and it kills him instantly. It says he was picked up dead. You know, in The Princess Bride, there's that famous statement by Billy Crystal that says there's a big difference between dead and mostly dead. He's dead. He's not mostly dead. He's dead, okay? <laughs> and Luke's a doctor. Luke knows. So he's out. He's dead. Verse 10, watch this. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed. He's alive. Like that, he's raised from the dead. I mean, we don't even know what 
what Paul prayed, how long the prayer, apparently wasn't very long. Long enough for Paul to put his arms around him. Maybe all he said was Jesus. Maybe all he said is, rise up. The man, the boy's alive. Instantly. Now, here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice, because this speaks to a couple of things. The power of the Apostle Paul to do this is stunning. But it also speaks to what we'd call the normalcy of this in the church. Because I'm going to tell you what, if one of you falls out and you're there and somebody says, they're dead, and I go down and I wrap my arms around them and, I, and they're instantly, I say, don't worry, you're alive. That's pretty much going to be the service for the day, right? We're all going <laughs> to, maybe we get the team up here, we sing a song, you, you know, hallelujah, he's alive. And, and we're like, man, that's kind of it, right? Not Paul. Watch this, verse 11. Then they went upstairs again. He's like, okay, where were we in the communion service? <laughs> I mean, it's no big deal. And they ate, and after, taking, after talking until daylight, he left. Paul's like, okay, let's pick up communion where we left off, and I've got a lot more to say, and he's fine. He, he, you don't have to worry about him. He's great. And we know that. The people took the young man home alive, and they were greatly comforted. I mean, this is one example in Acts of somebody being raised from the dead. It's amazing. There are 10 examples in the scripture, nine if you don't count Paul at Lystra when they stoned him, left him for dead at the city dump, and the believers gathered around and prayed over him. Some say it was a resurrection. Some say it wasn't. Look at it. Here's the list of them. Elijah raised the young boy. Elisha, Elijah's successor, raised a boy from the dead. The man thrown on the bones of Elisha, we sing about that. There, there were raiders coming in and they're like, oh, we got to get out or we don't have time to bury him. So they throw his bones and they hit Elijah's body or his coffin and immediately he comes to life. Jesus raised the widow's grown son. Jesus raised Jairus's daughter. Jesus raised Lazarus. God raised Jesus from the dead. Peter raised Dorcas in Acts chapter 9. Paul was raised by believers in Acts 14. And Paul raised Eutychus in Acts chapter 20. Charles Spurgeon in 1859, he was one of the greatest preachers in the history of the church, pastored a massive church, a mega church in London in his day, preached a sermon entitled The Story of God's Mighty Works. The point of the sermon was to say the miracles of the past are what set the precedent for the present and the future. Here's what he said. When people hear about what God used to do, one of the things they say is, oh, that was a very long while ago. Spurgeon says, I thought it was God that did it. Has God changed? Is he not an immutable God? That's a theological term for he never changes. Is he not an immutable God? The same yesterday, today, and forever? Does not that furnish an argument to prove that what God has done at one time, he can do at another? 
Nay, I think I may push it a little further and say what he has done once is a prophecy of what he intends to do again. Whatever God has done is to be looked upon as a precedent. Listen, the Bible says his, his testimony is our heritage forever. The works of God that we've seen done, that's an inheritance to us. That's, that's a gift God has given us. What it's saying to us is what he did in the past, he will do in the present, and he can do in the future. How's that possible? Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, forever, he's never changed. The same Jesus who healed in the Gospels is healing today. I can't heal anybody. You can't heal anybody. But Jesus heals people, right? Amen. The same Jesus who raised people from the dead three times. And there's a biblical principle in the mouth of three witnesses. Two or three witnesses is a fact established. It's a fact Jesus likes to raise people from the dead. This, and that, those are not the only, those are only recorded instances, but he did it apparently a lot of times. So the same Jesus who raised people from the dead back then raises people from the dead today. It's a precedent. It's a prophecy. It's something that God wants us to think about. Now think about this. Let's take it a step further. And the reason why I'm doing this is because the church has gotten so far away from a a what is said and what is done with signs and wonders, that the church has been content with what is said and has abandoned the supernatural. Part of what this move of God is about that we're in is God simply breathing on the church again to restore the church to its place of a vibrant faith that affects the life of people spiritually and physically, the physical leading to spiritual transformation. Jesus is the one who said in Matthew chapter 10, these words, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. You say, well, you know, time out, pastor. Let's talk about the hermeneutics of this. That is written to the disciples, and you can't apply it to us today. Oh, um, well, later in the chapter it says this, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Is that for you? If that's for us, then the other's for us. You can't have it both ways. You can't take a scissors and start cutting verses out of the chapter and still wind up with the word of God. It either says it or it doesn't. It either applies or it doesn't. If it's to his followers, it's to us. In fact, Jesus told the disciples in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. What did he command them? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You say, why are you bringing this up? Because if we don't see something as a possibility, we will never pray for it to happen. Now, Think of our progression in this move of God. So we start out, and we start by saying, hey, God is up to something, and things are going to happen. I went in and watched the vision video, and they showed me this little clip, and I was like, I was as shocked as you will be. I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, that was back when nothing was happening, and I said that. And it's not me. It's just simply the Lord 
the Lord is directing this and going before us. I, 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 it's not about a person. It's not about a church. It's what God is doing right now in this season. So let's be clear about that first. But what's happened is, as things are starting to happen and as things are declared and people are reminded of things, so we, you know, we get taxed and we're talking about unusual miracles and we're saying, what is that? We're talking about creative miracles. And so what do we see the next week? Creative miracles. We talk, we talk about different things from Azusa and what do we see? I mean, as we start thinking these things as possibilities, uh, last fall, uh, a couple times I mentioned uh, metal miracles where people would have metal dissolve from their body and already one that we know of, but there will be others. I'm just telling you there will. All I'm saying is that if you and I don't take the word at face value, and I realize it's a shocking thing for people to think of God raising the dead, but again, I just want to remind you of what Paul said. Why should any of us consider it incredible that God would raise the dead? So what's happened, though, is we've gotten away from that even being a part of our thinking relative to our walk with God. Now, let me kind of take you a little farther because I, I just want you to open your heart to what the Word of God has said and, and um, to understanding even history. Because there are some people who say, well, that's the apostolic age. Which again, that's a cessationist argument that holds absolutely zero water theologically. And I can give you some things if you want to read on it that will help you to see the reality of that. People say, well, if it's for today, why don't we see it happen? And it's because people aren't even taught as, about it as a possibility. But the dead are raised in the early church fathers who were around after all the apostles had died and were gone, they understood that raising the dead was a part of any gospel ministry. For example, and I, I could read several, but I'll just give you a few. Irenaeus, in one place, speaks of prayer and fasting of an entire church as effective in raising a person from the dead. Augustine wrote in his work, The City of God, describing in addition to a variety of specific healings, quote, demon possession, and even raising of the dead, end quote. People throughout history have had different ministries that have included raising the dead. Smith Wigglesworth in the last century raised 14 people from the dead. In Mozambique, one pastor who's raised seven people from the dead was asked, do you pray for all the dead to be raised? He responded, of course not. That would be an embarrassment to the church to pray for all the dead. You say, what's happening there? Not everyone dies in God's timing. Most people do. Some do not. Okay, so not, you know, honestly, and I'm going to say this to you and take it in the right spirit, okay? I've told Debbie for a long time, listen, if something happens and I die, I do not want you to resurrect me from the dead. She could, and I don't want you to. I'm in heaven. I'm happy. I'm loving it. I'll see you soon, okay? That's where I'm at, okay? <laughs> but, you know, there are some people who, when they die, they have not lived out their full life. 
Now listen, we know that to be true. Why does Jesus raise the widow's son at Nain? Hadn't lived out his full life. The Bible says before I ever lived today, he's counted and numbered them. He knows how many days you and I are going to live. He's got it. But sometimes in God's providential, miracle-working desire, people expire that, he, that have more miles left on the odometer. And God raises them from the dead. So the issue for us is to be sensitive on that. So this is not everybody who dies ought to be raised from the dead. This is be sensitive enough to sense what the Lord is doing. This pastor in Mozambique who's raised seven people from the dead says, of course I don't pray for everybody to be raised from the dead. It'd be, it embarrassed the church because God's not going to raise everybody from the dead, but he is going to raise some from the dead. He was asked then, how do you know who to pray for? And he answered, while my wife is talking to the family, I place my hand on the dead person's foot or near the ankle. If the place where I'm touching the dead person begins to become warm, or I'm praying for the person and a bolt of energy goes through my body, then I give my wife a sign and she will announce, we're going to pray for this person to be raised from the dead. When we do this, we see people raised from the dead. This past week, Kurt Parsley, our chief operations officer, oversees our missions department. He was going through his emails from missionaries, and here's an email he received from Daryl Blatchley in the Philippines. Hi, Kurt. One day when God opens the door, you need to come back to the Philippines. This year has been full of God surprises. I was delayed for a month and going uh, on a mini furlough to the U.S., and the Lord whispered to me that I was on his assignment, not a problem, and that I was to, quote, live in anticipation, end quote, of what he's going to do. Two weeks later, my friend Wick, Ricky's wife asked me to be at their home when my friend Ricky died. I arrived, and he was already stiff and cold. They were sitting there solemnly waiting for me to perform the funeral. I checked on my friend, Ricky, and he had no heartbeat, was cold and stiff, wasn't breathing. As far as I could tell, he was dead. I pulled up a chair between him and the family and thinking of his precious family, began praying, Jesus, 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 not my will, but yours be done. At that point, the Holy Spirit whispered to me, saying, look at Ricky. I looked at Ricky, and he was looking at me. <laughs> and he weakly grabbed my hand and began saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And that was the end of the funeral. <laughs> it's the first time I'd ever had that happen. Just one of many miracles. And then he goes on and just starts writing about missionary stuff. You say, ah, oh, John, you know, Mozambique, Philippines, it's all overseas. That stuff, I'll give you that, that it happens overseas. But it doesn't happen in the U.S. It's interesting because this week I read an article. She was dead before the prayer and alive after. ER doctor reports clinically dead woman revived in true miracle. This happened in Coffeyville, Kansas. Medical doctors testifying that a woman was raised from the dead by the power of prayer hours after emergency room staff had done everything they could to revive her. Dr. Landon D. Vinson, MD and emergency room doctor at the Coffeyville Regional Medical Center in Coffeyville, Kansas, recently told members of the First Assembly of God about the miracle he witnessed along with their pastor, the Reverend Randy DePriest. 
In a video posted on YouTube, Vincent gives his testimony to the congregation. It was during the spring of 2021, at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, when an unnamed woman was taken to the emergency room in Coffeyville. She was receiving CPR when she was brought into the emergency room and was given CPR for an entire hour after arriving, but she died. We did not get her heart beating again, but essentially the only, we did get her heart beating again, he said, but essentially the only thing keeping her heart going were shots of adrenaline in her bloodstream and putting her on a ventilator, Vincent said. From a medical standpoint, she wasn't alive. She was what we call brain dead. He described to the congregation the numerous medical officials, how they, numerous ways medical officials determine a person has died. In this instance, they found no signs of life. The woman's eyes were fixed and dilated. She showed no gag reflex. Her limbs showed signs of mottling, all of which precede the onset of rigor mortis. So Dr. Vincent, his staff, and the woman's husband decided to remove her from life support. According to Dr. Vincent, the woman's husband had asked someone to call Pastor the Priest to come and pray. Vincent said he told the man, sure, we'll wait for the pastor to get here. He thought that he and the nurses would simply wait for the pastor out of respect for the woman and her husband. After a few minutes, Pastor DePriest arrived at the hospital. The staff had not told him about the woman's condition, so he placed his hand on her shoulder and began to pray. We began to pray over her, the doctor recalled. My head was bowed. There was a nurse in the room, maybe just a couple of minutes into the prayer. A machine began sounding an alarm. I thought I would just turn it off so it would not be distracting. When I looked up, spontaneous breath began coming back. I saw a hand moving on this woman. As the pastor prayed over, the pastor began to ask her questions. She started nodding her head and responding. He called her by name and said, this is Pastor Randy, and I've come to pray for you. Her eyes opened, and he asked, can you hear me okay? She nodded yes. Then Pastor Dupree said, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Again, she nodded yes. He continued, that's great news. Today we're going to do what the Scripture says, where two or three agree, touching anything and believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, asking him, it shall be done. So I'm asking God to restore your health and to heal you. Does that sound all right? Again, her reply was yes. This made no sense to me because previously she did not have any sign of life. Dr. Vincent continued, we had taken her off all medications. We'd given her four medications to keep her heart going. Those were all turned off, but now her blood pressure was strong. It was going through the roof. She was blinking her eyes. I leaned down and asked, can you hear me? She nodded her head, yes. I asked, do you want us to keep going and fight? She aggressively shook her head, yes. This was the first true miracle that I've ever seen. It was a very humbling moment. As Dr. Vincent wrapped up his testimony, he described how he told a nurse, this was a miracle. Vincent said he attempted to find reasons for the event in his medical books, but he couldn't find anything. As an emergency room doctor, Vincent is very familiar with death. The woman was brain dead. She was on multiple medications we call vasopressors, or pressors for short. These IV infusions keep the heart beating, increase the heart squeeze, and constrict blood vessels, all in an attempt to keep blood pressure high enough to perfuse the brain and vital organs. Other than these infusions, keeping her heart beating and generating a blood pressure, the ventilator giving oxygen and ventilating the lungs, there were no clinical signs of life. Her neurologic exam would classify her as brain dead and therefore justifiable to remove her from the artificial life support, he said. As Pastor DePriest came in and we had just turned off 
all the vasopressors and were preparing to extubate, take the patient off the ventilator, and anticipated rapid progression to the pronouncement of death, the doctor explained. In summary, she was clinically dead. We were preparing to pronounce her so. She began moving and responding to the pastor's questions during his prayer. She was not just generating her own heartbeat and blood pressure now. She was fighting the ventilator by her own breathing. He said, I see no other explanation than a miracle for this phenomenon. I don't know that I'll ever understand the mechanism, but I know she was dead before the prayer and alive after. I think it may have been a lesson in humility and a warning not to limit God in your faith, the doctor wrote. Don't limit God in your faith. That's really good advice. We won't pray for things we don't think are possible. And I just believe God wants to expand our thinking on what we pray for and how we pray. Again, I'm not saying everybody who dies is going to be resurrected. I'm just simply saying some of you are going to be in situations or somebody's going to be dead and you're going to put your hand on them and you're just maybe even only going to say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And they're going to come back to life. I believe that's going to happen many times. But if you don't think it's possible, you won't even think of praying it. Jesus said, as you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. God has come close. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse the lepers. Drive out demons. Pray for the impossible. Believe that God's going to do great things. Listen. God has shown us what he can do. I mean, over a thousand miracles a week of power. I mean, stories that are amazing. And, and I'm just telling you, there's more stories coming because what's happening is your faith is growing. And as our faith is growing, it's going to enable God to do more in this place. We have not seen the biggest. I mean, every miracle is big. I don't want to put bigger, little, but... We're going to see some very unusual miracles. You're going to see people get out of wheelchairs. You can, that, that is going to happen. You're going to see some things we've not seen yet. And what you have to accept is there will always be people who ridicule that. There will always be people who say, yeah, 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 that's not going to happen. But there are a lot of people who said what we've seen so far wouldn't happen, right? And it has. This is a move of God. This is not me. It's not you. And it's not the church. It's God showing up in this place and saying, I'm going to breathe on these people. I'm going to do something extraordinary for my own sovereign will and good pleasure that people might come to know me, not just here, but I believe all over the country. I believe this is the beginning of a great awakening. I believe that with all of my heart. So it's bigger than us. It, 
he's using us. What a grace from the Lord that, that God would choose. He could show up anywhere, and he's chosen to show up in, in this place of all places. But he's, he's doing something that's supernaturally wonderful. Man, whatever, whatever you can do to cultivate your faith, I'm not talking about foolishness. I'm just talking about walking close enough to the Lord, walking close enough to the Lord to know God is at work. And that's for everybody in this room, not just for me, it's for everybody.